your name. Amen. You may be seated. If you looked at your email this week, you might have seen reference in your email to uh, the poem. Andrew referenced the poem that uh, this song is based off of by Howard Thurman, and uh, this is called, the song is called I Am the Light of the World. I think the poem is called The Work of Christmas, right? Yeah, something like, yeah. Christmas has begun. I am the light of the world. You people come and follow me. If you follow and love, you'll learn the mystery of what you were meant to do and be. To find the lost and lonely to heal the broken soul with love to feed the hungry children with warmth and good food to feel the earth below and sky above i am the light of the world you people come and follow me if you follow and believe you'll learn the mystery of what you do and be to free the prisoner from all chains to make the powerful care to rebuild the nations with strength of goodwill to see God's children everywhere I am the light of the world you people come and follow if you follow and love, you'll learn the mystery of what you were meant to do and be, to bring hope to every task you do, to dance at a baby's new birth, to make music in an old person's heart and sing all the colors of the earth. I am the light of the world. You people come and follow me. If you follow and believe, you'll learn the mystery of what you were meant to do and be.
Well, as we move to God in prayer, I invite you to join me in praying those requests that you see in the back of your bulletin. We begin by praying for those who are going for treatment for cancer, for Sue Dismore and Mary Thomas and Harry Martin, for Amanda's Aunt Carol and Moeen Begum and Kay Hendrickson, for Pam Detmore and for Ann Pickett. We pray God's presence might be with them and give them strength. Lord, in your mercy. We continue to pray for Judy Butler and her husband Byron as Judy goes through hospice. Um, she's at Mulberry Healthcare right now. Um, when I visited with them a week ago, they told me that uh, Byron is still living at home in Lafayette, but that he wakes up at 7 a.m. and drives out there to be with her and drives home again at four every day. And so we pray for their uh, continued journey together during this time. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for Kathy Sterling. For the back problems, we give thanks for her presence with us today and for the artwork in the back that we get to enjoy every week. Uh, but we lift her up and pray for God's comfort. Lord, in your mercy. And we pray for the folks who are uh, going through rehab right now, for Donna Adams, who's at Creasy Spring, for Betty Maxwell, who's at Westminster. And we pray that God might continue to help them during this time of recovery. Lord, in your mercy. We learned late on Friday uh, that we need to be praying for Marty Jackson, whose son Jan died this week. Uh, we pray for peace and comfort with the Jackson family at this time. Lord, in your mercy. Well, holy and gracious God, we pray today for the world in which we live, for the places in which there continues to be need, in which there is heartache and pain. We know that even in our darkest, most difficult times that you continue to journey with us, that your presence continues to be with us in all things. We pray today that you might continue to give us the strength that we need to face whatever it is that is going on in our lives. Oh, holy God, as we gather here today, we pray for the world in which we live, knowing that there are places in which there continues to be war and heartache and famine. We know, O oh holy God, that you are good, that you are making a way where perhaps there is no way. We pray this, O oh holy God, knowing that you are filling each of us with your spirit, that you are bringing to life within us a call to be a part of your kingdom. O oh holy and gracious God, as we gather, help us to see this neighborhood, this city, this world as part of who you are as part of what you are doing in this world. Help us see in the face of our neighbors, your justice, your image. A holy and gracious God, we pray that you might, as we enter this new year, transform each of us. That you might make our hearts new. That we might live and exist and serve you in your good news. And a holy God, as we gather, we pray for those places in our world in which there is war. In this Christmas season, in the season of your peace, we pray for the Ukraine, for Gaza and Israel, for Yemen and the Sudan. We pray, O oh Holy God, that you might continue to make new ways, that you might inspire in your people the imagination to be able to see the world not as it is, but as it could be. We pray for your church gathered in this place and in all places that we might continue to be a beacon of your kingdom. Oh, holy God, help us as we enter this room to follow you in all things. That we might, in our lives, live as symbols and signs of what you are doing. 
for we have known that you are good, O God. And in all things, you bless us and keep us and strengthen us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, I think we all know what time of year it is. Christmas is almost over, not technically over yet. We still are on five golden ring, rings or six geese laying, no, whatever. One of the bird ones. Uh, but one of the things that the new year means uh, to me, and I think to a lot of people, is that when I go to the gym on Tuesday, it's going to be full. It's almost the worst day of the year to go to the gym. Uh, to be fair, when I went to the gym for the first time and started lifting weights two years ago, I was that person there that everybody was like, oh gosh, she's not going to come back. He's just here for January. And here I am two years later, and I continue to lift weights several times a week. Gay Helgedy can vouch for me. I do. Uh, and I have learned a lot lifting weights. And some of the things actually carry over really well into faith. Um, when you're lifting weights, form and consistency are the most important parts. Uh, you don't get better, you don't lift more weight unless you regularly do the exercises the right way. That's it. And when I think about faith, it makes me think about the fact that in weightlifting, uh, you may not know this if you've never been in a gym before, but there are really only a few important lifts. Uh, squats, deadlift, bench press, everything else that you do in a gym is supposed to serve those three lifts. Everything. And so maybe in faith, you could say that there are only like three or four important things love, peace, humility, mercy, kindness, the fruits of the spirit, and everything else we do in life is supposed to support those things. Also, a thing that weightlifting will teach you about, uh, that's important about church and faith life in general, you don't get stronger without showing up. It's kind of the same thing in faith. You don't get stronger without showing up to God in whatever way that is that you do. So those are some of the things I've learned. But today I wanted to talk about something I learned from weightlifting that feeds into faith that really relates to our reading today from the Gospel of Mark. It's actually something I haven't done as a weightlifter. I'm still what Amanda would call a baby weightlifter. I haven't progressed to the like serious folks at the gym uh, but it's this thing that weightlifters, in particular bodybuilders, will do called cutting and bulking. So when you're lifting weights in order to build muscle, you have to eat a calorie surplus. You have to eat more than you're supposed to. And there's this joke about uh, people who are in a bulk which is what they call it, eating fried chicken and just every junk food thing they can have. Because in order to build muscle mass, you have to eat more than your body needs. It's kind of obvious when you think about it. You have to eat more. And so some of those extra calories turn into muscle. Uh, but of course, your body is not the smartest machine alive, and so it converts some of that into fat. 
And so the folks who want to look really muscular, which is not really my goal, but I can appreciate how much work it takes. The people who you see doing the, the you know, the, <laughs> those people, they have to be careful about how much they bulk. They can't always be eating in a calorie surplus because it'll result in them putting on not just muscle, but extra fat. And so for a while they will bulk, but then they will go through another cycle called cutting in which they will lower the amount they eat. And at the same time, they'll do what's called maintenance on their lifts. So if you squat 300 pounds, you're not trying to add weight during a cut because you're not getting enough calories to support it. And so it's this cycle, cutting and bulking, cutting and bulking. And if you're really serious about it, it is a ton of work. Like it makes me exhausted just thinking about it, having to plan your diet and knowing what phase you're in and can I go with my friends to a restaurant when I'm cutting or do I have to wait three months until I'm bulking again? I mean, it's just, it's a lot. But this idea of a cycle, that there are cycles we go through, that, that what we are trying to accomplish at one day is not what we will be accomplishing a month from now, I think is something that exists in faith. We may think that our faith is always the same, but it actually requires from time to time that we stop and reflect. It requires that we go through cycles of saying, hey, wait a minute, is the way I am living my faith still being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are our lives directed towards God or to other ends? And so today in our scripture, we're gonna hear the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Mark. But before we get to Jesus's actual preaching, we're gonna hear of a call for repentance. And so let's listen to our scripture today from the first chapter of Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my son the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tested by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. May God bless this reading. Well, this is how the Gospel of Mark begins. There's no Christmas story, no birth, no shepherds in the fields. It's just a guy dressed in weird clothes with an odd diet announcing the need for repentance. I think John might have been on a cut at this time. But repentance is very much a part of the cycle of faithful living. We know that, aside from Jesus, no one really gets it right all the time, that given enough of a life to live, we all wander, inevitably. It's almost better to admit that that happens than to pretend that it doesn't. And in faith, when we have wandered, repentance is the answer. Now, repentance, it doesn't, in the biblical term, does not mean asking for forgiveness. It's actually more uh, active than that. The Greek word is metanoia. And metanoia actually refers to a transformation, to making a transformation. So it is about making a concerted effort to be changed for the gospel. So it's no wonder that the gospel of Jesus begins with a call for repentance. That before we even hear from Jesus, we have John out at the river calling people to repent. And in fact, it is Jesus who shows up ready to reset and begin. As his ministry carries on from there, Jesus approaches going about, Jesus approaches fishermen going about their daily lives. He approaches these fishermen who are in boats with their father fishing and Jesus calls them and they have to make a decision. We don't really know how long it took them. If they had to sit down and think about it, if they had to talk with one another, there's the fascinating tidbit of, did they tell their father where they were going or did they just leave him in the boat alone without explanation? What we do know is that they do leave. A transformation has happened, a metanoia. They repent in a word and they begin on their way on the path following Jesus. And so there is this constant cycle in faith. It's not just following on the path, but it's also repentance, preparing oneself. You know, I imagine that later on in the story of Jesus in his lives, those earliest followers would have had to stop and ask, are we still on the path? Are we still being faithful? You can even think of Peter being questioned by Jesus, who do you say I am? And Jesus saying, you are the Lord. 
And then Jesus saying, well, I'm going to have to die. And Peter saying, no, Lord, not that. And Jesus' words to him are, get behind me, Satan. He's not always on the same path. He has to stop and think about it and reflect. And faith requires these periods and these acts of repentance. The act of acknowledging that no matter how far we've come on the path, there's still work that we need to do. And that, in fact, we don't ever get to the end ourselves, but that it is only Jesus who brings the work to an end. We just go through the cycle, practicing faith and stopping to acknowledge our own need for transformation, following Jesus on his path and repenting when we realize that we have wandered You know, one of the things that makes the Gospel of Mark so compelling is its constant emphasis on the kingdom. It's the first thing Jesus says. There's this urgency to Mark's Gospel, a sense that this is happening right now. It almost feels like a train going downhill. You can either hop on this movement or you can get out of the way because something amazing is happening And as Christians, in so many ways, we are seeking to live our lives in line with that kingdom. And it is very much meant to be a kingdom that is a challenge to other kingdoms in our world. You know, we know, if you read the newspaper, social media, whatever, we know that we live in a world in which the dignity of people is not always upheld. That there are forces that treat people as disposable that tread on the worth of individuals. We can name all the isms, racism, homophobia, sexism, xenophobia, the other forms of prejudice that exist around us. And in seeking to live for God's kingdom, for the kingdom Jesus proclaims, we are trying to subvert these things, to resist their presence, because we know that in God's kingdom, What will matter most about us is the simple fact that we are created in the image of God. What will matter most about folks is that they are God's children. So to be a follower of Christ, to hear God's call, like he says in the Gospel of Mark, is to live for the kingdom. This kingdom which Jesus says has drawn near. So what are we waiting for? Well, we are human, we try our best, and we make mistakes. We wander off the path, and so we need this constant cycle. We try to live faithfully, and then we turn back when we've wandered. Practice and repentance, faith and metanoia. In the middle of the 20th century, there was this movement in Latin America called liberation theology. Um, There were these priests, largely Catholic, who felt very strongly that what was happening to the poor in places like Peru and Chile and Argentina, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and elsewhere, was against God's kingdom. And they felt like the church wasn't doing enough to to challenge the systems of their time. This would include things like dictatorships. It would include things like the greed of the wealthy who often use their influence to oppress the poor. And they wanted the church to do more to challenge those systems. 
that were acting against the dignity of the people in their churches. And so they developed this new kind of theology that was rooted in people's experience on the ground. They would listen to the people and they would begin to understand their faith, to understand Jesus's call to the kingdom through the lens of those whose identity as the image of God had been misplaced by the world. And so one of the contributions that liberation theology made was this cycle that they introduced. The purpose of theology, they said, was to be a critical reflection on practice. As in, they would continue their ministry in the parish, in the church. They would serve the people in their communities. And then they would reflect on whether or not what they were doing was actually benefiting the poor or continuing systems of oppression. So to do this, they would listen to people. It's a wild idea in church. Listen to people. They'd allow the lives and stories of the people they were serving to influence how they understood the gospel. This was a very radical shift in theology. Not everyone liked it. Though it's really not that much different than what you hear in scripture. Folks try to be faithful, stick as much as they can to God's directives, and then they have to stop and reevaluate. They have to practice faith, and then they have to repent. But liberation theology wanted the church to listen to the poor in these communities, and that changed things. For instance, one of the contributions they made was, for a long time, Christianity has been thought to be about saving souls, getting people to repent and believe in Jesus. How do you get people to accept Jesus as their savior? How do you get them to orient their lives around Jesus's teachings? But what you find out when you're talking to folks who are just trying to survive in precarious situations is it is really difficult to think about your soul when you're not sure how you're gonna feed your family. If you're not sure that the government or guerrilla forces aren't going to physically assault you, then your soul isn't really the foremost thing on your mind. Feeding your family and staying alive is. And so liberation theologians were famous for talking about what they called the whole person. Theology shouldn't just be about your soul, but with every part of your life in existence, including your physical needs. And they reached this conclusion by listening to the people they served. And in this way, they allowed their beliefs and practices to be transformed. It's a cycle, action and reflection, practice and repentance. Another way of saying this, if you love someone the way the Bible calls us to love others, then you have to be concerned with their situation in life. You have to know them and the problems they face, and you have to be willing to allow your faith to be transformed. Because in the end, what it's all about is seeking the kingdom. And if we're going to live for the kingdom, then we're saying that we are about a world where dignity and worth, where the image of God in all people is the most important part of them. 
So I remember a conversation I had a couple of years ago. Uh, it was with a group of clergy, some from uh, largely white congregations and some from largely black congregations in town here in Lafayette. And we were listening to one another and learning about how racism affects our community, which is something I don't think about in my personal life very much, but it turns out that folks of color do all of the time. And one after another, the black clergy shared their experiences of being pulled over by the police. We've been pulled over once in Lafayette, by the way, and it's because Amanda forgot to put the registration sticker on her license plate. So we deserved it. But one of the pastors, a young black man, even said that he had his car windows tinted as dark as he could legally get them tinted and noticed that afterwards the incidents declined. So we have to ask, how does the experience of our siblings of color affect our faith practice? You know, is hearing stories from people of color reveals that there are places in the world where their dignity is not upheld, where their imago Dei, image of God, is not recognized, then doesn't announcing the kingdom also mean denouncing racism? Now, I remember this classmate I had in divinity school. He was studying to be a minister, and he was a gay man. And when he was young, he had been a part of a church that sent him to a conversion camp, one of those places where they try to pray away the gay and get them to stop being attracted to the same sex, as though that were possible, which is a big question. And he shared his experience in class. He had accepted himself as a gay man, was studying to be a minister in a tradition that would ordain him, but he still struggled from this shame he had from going to this camp as a kid, and it had led to substance abuse. And he eventually dropped out of grad school. And I can say I'm glad he is doing much, much better now. But he went through this dark period because of what the church had taught him about himself. And I, for myself, you know, knowing the harm that the church's perspective on homosexuality had on him and on others, knowing the way in which it teaches people that they're not loved the way they are, how does my faith change knowing that he is made in the image of God and that practices or words or belief that harm his dignity need to be transformed? You know, if hearing stories from folks who are gay reveals that an exclusive theology leads folks to self-harm, then shouldn't we proclaim a kingdom where the worth of all people, no matter who they love, is paramount? You know, when people come to the church and they're asking for assistance, when they are working as much as possible, but due to issues like housing insecurity or mental illness, or when they've simply fallen behind on bills and can't seem to catch up, how does that change my own walk of faith? Doesn't it call us to a mercy that says, I know you've probably made mistakes, we all have, but you still deserve food and water and shelter because you are in the image of God. And this, this is what faith is about. We are all on this pathway, trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And at some point we wander off the path. 
Maybe our hearts grow hard. Maybe we start thinking that dogma and doctrine is more important than people. But at some point we wander off the path and there is no example outside of Jesus of someone who doesn't wander off the path. The question is, how do we continue to grow on the path? How do we stop and reassess where we are and make corrections? It's another thing that weight training has taught me. It does not matter how long you have been lifting, you were always in need of reforming your form. Every once in a while, I will go to the gym and I will decrease the heaviest lift I am doing by 10 or 20%. I'll lift less weight than I can to try to get better at each lift, to try to make sure I'm doing it right. Because if you put a lot of weight in your back and try to squat it, you might hurt yourself. Faith is like that. There are cycles. Action and repentance. There's a need to step back and reflect, to listen and to reinterpret, to think, maybe I don't have it all right. And I need to admit that. Because if the goal is what Jesus says it is, to live as though the kingdom has drawn near, then we're going to have to continually grow towards that kingdom. And so as we enter this new year, this week, I wonder how your Christian practice needs to be evaluated. Where does it need some practice? Where does it need to grow? Where do you need to wander back to the path? It's time to get back in the gym or chapel or food pantry or wherever it is you find your walk with God. If you've wandered, that's fine. We all do from time to time. Luckily, we have a God who continues to offer us grace and mercy and to direct us back towards the transformation intended for us. Let us pray. O holy and gracious God, we give you thanks today for this chance to be together and pray for the transformation that you were bringing about in our hearts. May we in all things, O God, seek you on your path May we in all things allow the parts of us that are holding us back pass away. And may we seek to plant the seeds, to nurture the plants of peace and justice and mercy in all things. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.